scripture reading this morning is going to be from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. At least that's going to be the first scripture reading, the first part of what I'm going to be going through in terms of our message this morning. So let's begin. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11 from the ESV translation. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray. Our God and Fathers, we come this morning to the word, this message, this section of scripture. And we pray that our hearts would be focused on that which is of first importance. What you have done to bring redemption into this world, to save people by your grace, through the person and work of your son. So give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, Lives that desire to serve Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, uh, this morning I'm doing something that no one's ever supposed to do who's doing public speaking. And that is to actually speak uh, with a cough drop in my mouth. <laughs> it just so happens that um, we are in the worst season out here in North Carolina in terms of allergies and pollens, and I have to say that finally, far more than ever in Bakersfield, this has hit me and hit me hard. Um, and uh, just this week, uh, Luke and Francesca and Emma and Tess were here visiting with us, and I remarked to them that you can drive one mile uh, in North Carolina and where we live and wind up encountering more trees than in all the state of California. <laughs> there are trees everywhere, and it's the pollen season, and it's affecting just about everyone. <clears throat> but we'll put that aside. You'll pardon me if I cough a little bit and pause a little bit to catch my breath, sip a bit of water as we begin. Now, notice the sermon title. It picks up where we were last week, of first and final importance and beyond last week's message, the resurrection of Christ. Now, I want you to think about something for a moment. Um, if you've been reading the New Testament for 
a period of time in your life, you will come across the fact that some chapters in the New Testament have nicknames. And that's because uh, the entire chapter is virtually devoted to one main idea that is significant to the Christian faith. So, for instance, uh, the 13th chapter of Matthew. It's the parables of the kingdom chapter. Or uh, the 24th chapter of Matthew. It's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus delivered that message foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem and then various signs pertaining to the to the end of the ages there on Mount Olive. So what's the Olivet Discourse? And then the night before Jesus was uh, crucified, uh, up in the upper room, he prayed this prayer. He prayed this prayer on behalf of his disciples then present, as well as for the future of the church. So this chapter has come to be known as the High Priestly Prayer Chapter. And then, of course, if I said, give me where you find, quote, the love chapter, most of you might be able to say, oh, that's 1 Corinthians 13. That's where the apostle defines the true nature of agape love. Now, we come to 1 Corinthians 15, and it is the resurrection chapter. It is almost wholly devoted to the confirmation of the event of the resurrection of Christ from the dead as that event which confirms the gospel message and confirms the work of Christ to save us from our sins. Now, in accord with what Paul says, this chapter deals with what is of first importance. What Paul says he received as of first importance, namely this, from verses 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So, you have Good Friday. You have Saturday resting in the tomb Easter Sunday morning, all contained in verses 3 to 4. Now, in our last message last Sunday, we focused how, according to the scriptures, and for our sins, Christ died. This morning, we focus really on the remainder of verse 4, that after Christ was buried, he was raised on the third day. For the resurrection really is the final part, the vindicating part, the confirming part of this message that is of first importance. So as we opened up Paul's words last week, we talked about how according to the plan of the scriptures and the prophecies of the scriptures, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, became man in order to die in our place for our sins to provide a perfect atonement, to pay our sinful debt, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. And Paul says, this is the message that is of first importance and consequently of eternal importance. And this message is fully confirmed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so today's theme is much like last message's theme. That in a world of lost sinners, there is no other message in the gospel that is of first importance. And this message is confirmed by the resurrection of Christ the dead. So, to stress this again, the whole chapter here is essentially Paul's defense and confirmation of Christianity's foundational truth. 
But on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead according to the scriptures. Now, my intention this Easter morning is this. As briefly as possible, well, within my abilities to do this, as briefly as possible, to give Paul's threefold defense of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because not only in our day, even in his day, as the chapter records, there were questions and doubts about the resurrection. Now, when we analyze Paul's defense and confirmation of the resurrection of Christ in this chapter, we actually can see three different lines of argument, three different angles, three different points of view from which he defends the resurrection. And I want to describe them in this way, these three ways. First, there is a situational confirmation of the resurrection. Secondly, there is a normative confirmation of the resurrection. And thirdly, there is a personal confirmation of the resurrection. Now, only the first of these three arguments comes out of verses um, 1 through 11. So for the second argument and then for the third argument, I'll have to read some additional sections out of chapter 15. But I will do all in my power to make Paul's arguments clear, even while I'll also work hard to make my message concise. Now, to begin with, the situational confirmation of the resurrection. By situational, I mean this. I'm referring to the historical situation that Paul describes concerning the nature of the historical eyewitnesses. So in verses 5 through 11, Paul sets forth, he lays out the various eyewitnesses to the resurrection event, to those who actually saw the Lord Jesus after he had risen from the dead. So in verse 5, he mentions the main eyewitnesses to the resurrection, Peter first and all the apostles. And a few verses later, he returns to that same group. Then in verse 6, he talks about the many eyewitnesses to the resurrection, some 500 brothers. And then verse 7, again, the apostle James and the apostles once again. So if this were a conspiracy, conspiracy to promote a lie, it would have involved a whole lot of people beyond the original apostles. We'll come back to that in a few moments. And then thirdly, verse 8, lastly, the Apostle Paul. Paul includes himself in this list of eyewitnesses because he had his personal encounter to the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. His conversion from one who persecuted the church to one who proclaimed faith in Jesus is that which gives his own testimony great credence. Because there was no apparent reason in his life for his life to change dramatically in this way. And, and Paul makes references to that throughout his ministry. Now, here's a point to remind ourselves about how the apostles were treated in the earliest days with respect to the crucifixion of Christ. Why does Paul feel this kind of necessity to lay out these eyewitness accounts? Well, it's because of this. One of the reasons, the Jewish leadership immediately uh, after the empty tomb was discovered, when the soldiers who guarded the tomb came to the chief priest, the Jewish leadership immediately put out the word that the disciples had stolen the body of Christ. And therefore perpetuated the idea that the 
Disciples report that Jesus had been raised from the dead was a lie in order to motivate the claim, the false claim, that Jesus was the Messiah. So the official Jewish story was that the disciples were involved in a conspiracy, a conspiracy to falsely exalt their dead leader, Jesus Christ, to Messiahship. Now, in that regard, I want you to consider some remarks made by Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson, someone who was quite acquainted with a conspiracy to protect a lie. Now, for any of us who are old enough to have lived through the Watergate scandal of the 1970s, uh, when President Nixon had to resign from his office, the name Charles Colson, Colson is familiar. He was the attorney and special counsel to the president, also known as Nixon's hatchet man. He was convicted, sent to federal prison for seven months for the charges levied against him in the Watergate break-in. But in the midst of all that was happening in his life, Colson became a Christian. And after his release, he devoted the rest of his life to Christ and to ministry. He founded Prison Fellowship. He wrote a number of books. And he became a leading Christian apologist for the truth of the gospel. But now to Colson's own experience and how it pertains to the question of the conspiracy, or the disciples being involved in a conspiracy. How Colson's own experience shed some light on the idea that the disciples formed a conspiracy to lie about the death of Jesus, about the empty tomb, falsely claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. You see, Colson had first-hand involvement in the Watergate conspiracy cover-up. He was one of the conspirators who tried to keep the lie alive. And because of his involvement in Watergate and the cover-up and the conspiracy, he wrote about his own perspective and conviction about the resurrection of Christ, about whether the disciples could conceivably be involved in a conspiracy of lies about the resurrection. So this is what Colson said. I know the resurrection's a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years and never once denied it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me the apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So Colson is making the argument on behalf of the apostolic witness of the resurrection. For if they had lied, if they lied in a conspiracy to deceive, then how is it possible that they never broke rank over 40 years, not even over the most extreme pressures to do so? And Colson says, that isn't human nature. That's simply not possible. And we would have to agree. But when we grant that the disciples were not lying, that the disciples were telling the truth, 
their conviction, their courage, with help from God, explains why they suffered all they suffered rather than to deny Christ. And the reason for this situational historical eyewitness argument is basically like this. Some of the people at the church in Corinth were raising doubts about the resurrection of the dead. People at Corinth who had heard the gospel, encountered Christ, been saved, not comfortable with the doctrine of the resurrection, even outright denying the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. Now, why and where did that come from? Well, it came out of their pagan background. To the pagan Greek mind, the idea of a resurrection of the body would be a very difficult idea to conceive of about the afterlife. In paganism, the afterlife is always a matter of the soul. It's about the destiny of the soul. It's about where the soul goes after death, after the death of the body. The main idea was that the soul went to Hades, the realm of the dead, the underworld. It's the realm of the dead, meaning the body's dead, but the soul continues. In paganism, the body doesn't have a future life. The body just returns to the dust and disintegrates. Now, most importantly here is this. The biblical view of the resurrection of the body was a very new concept and a foreign idea about the afterlife when it came into the Greco-Roman pagan world. Paganism didn't have any place for the resurrection of the body. It did not see any point to the resurrection of the body. So Paul's very first argument speaks to this situation. There is a resurrection of the body. The resurrection of Jesus proves it. And his bodily resurrection has its confirmation and its demonstration by hundreds who are eyewitnesses. And it's definitely not a conspiracy of lies to promote Jesus as the Messiah. Now we come then to the next portion of what the Apostle Paul has to say, his second argument, which is a normative confirmation of the resurrection. And what I mean by normative here is I mean an argument that appeals to undeniable norms of thinking and behaving. For instance, here's a norm, cause and effect. Uh, within every empirical uh, perspective about science, the cause of an effect always precedes the effect. That's an empirical norm. Now, we also have moral norms. For instance, it is murder to take a human life without a just cause. It is theft to take someone's property apart from just and lawful conditions. It's immoral to make a slave of another human being. In the realm of morality, there are basic moral norms. Now, there are then also norms that are logical. In fact, logical norms are the most basic kinds of norms that we have in all arguments. All empirical norms and all moral norms actually depend upon logical norms for their foundational support. And that's how Paul argues next. In verses 12 to 19, his argument there conforms to the normative nature of logic. So let me read verses 12 to 19. <clears throat> so addressing this question about the resurrection, Paul says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed 
as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, Paul's argument here is based on the normative nature of logic. There were those in the Corinthian church who were denying the doctrine of the resurrection of the body uh, as having any part in a future afterlife. And to this, Paul responds with an argument that involves a series of if-then statements known in logic studies as hypothetical syllogisms, which form one of the most common normative approaches in terms of logical argumentation. So Paul's argument, briefly stated, is this. Look to verse 13. Paul saying, if your assumption or claim that there is no resurrection of people from the dead, if you hold that as your general truth, then this means there's been no resurrection of Christ from the dead. The first statement effectively, logically cancels the second. The universal cancels the particular. If there are no resurrections at all, then there is no resurrection of Christ. Now, that's the major argument. It's perfectly logical. But then Paul goes on, verse 14. He states the logical consequences that this has then for the message of the gospel. Consequences which are entirely unacceptable to those who have believed in Jesus because they are devastating consequences. They are consequences that actually destroy the Christian faith. And they are consequences that pit the Christian gospel against God himself thus consequences that would make the Christian faith vain and useless. If you go back to the beginning of this chapter, Paul says in a phrase, unless you have believed in vain. And he's picking up on that theme again. In essence, ultimately to prove that, no, you have not believed in vain. But it's all tied in with the validity and confirmation of the resurrection. Now, this uselessness or the futility of the faith in Christ is going to show up in four particular ways. Verse 15, the gospel message about what God has done in Christ is a false witness about God. If there is no resurrection, then the gospel message about what God has done in Christ is a false witness about God. And this means, for those who promote the gospel, that we are seriously on the wrong side of God rather than being justified before God. That's the first major inference. Second, verses 16 and 17. Paul goes on to say, that means that the work of Christ as an atonement is a false idea. Thus, there is no forgiveness of sins through Christ. There is no salvation through Christ. There is no being saved by faith in Christ. We all who are believers in Christ are still fully guilty and condemned people before the justice of God. I want to pause here for a moment and, and have you think about this 
I remember a story that a woman told me uh, that upon her conversion at age 33, it was six weeks later that her 11-year-old daughter became a Christian as well. And she said, this is what my daughter said to me the day that she prayed and received Christ. She said, Mom, I feel so clean. And what she was talking about was the burden of sin and how that makes us feel subjectively unclean, dirty, filthy, in all different kinds of ways, connected with shame, that was gone. She had had this powerful experience of having all of that burden lifted from her upon believing in Christ and taking Christ as her Lord and Savior. I've never forgotten that story. And it has connected itself to this. Imagine these Corinthian believers trusting in Christ and having all of their sins forgiven and feeling truly clean for the first time in their lives, inwardly, morally, before God. And now Paul is saying, if you reject the idea of the resurrection, then then all of that that you have felt is an illusion. It It's not real. It's futile. And then Paul goes on to point out a third consequence if you reject the idea of the resurrection of the dead. Verse 18, he says, this hope that we have for, for dead believers, people who've already died, that hope which we have had for them and which they had for themselves utterly perishes. Because if there is no resurrection from the dead, then they have not been saved. They have themselves died in a false hope. And then the fourth thing that Paul says coming from verse 19, then the hope for us as well as believers currently living alive is the false hope. And furthermore, if we have this hope and it's for this life only, we are above all people most to be pitied. So what Paul does here is he states the logical, undeniable consequences of doubting and denying the resurrection of the dead. He shows that the Christian faith is utterly destroyed if Jesus' resurrection is doubtful. But Paul's first argument, the historical situational argument, has already demonstrated that Christ has indeed risen from the dead. And if Christ has indeed risen from the dead, this proves and establishes the general and universal truth that there is a resurrection from the dead. And so Paul brings this point to a kind of semi-conclusion here in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection of Christ proves the Old Testament biblical teaching of the bodily resurrection of the dead, with Christ being the first to rise. So those who have doubts about there being a resurrection of the dead must see that the actual resurrection of Christ disproves their pagan assumption and ought to dispel their doubts. So 
In this manner, Paul appeals to the normative nature of logic to confirm the resurrection. In the next section of 1 Corinthians 15, from verses 21 to 28, Paul departs from his line of arguments to actually do a greater uh, exposition and teaching about the doctrine of the resurrection itself. So this is expositional. He doesn't really come to his third argument until you come to verse 29. And then he really comes to the personal confirmation of the resurrection when he gets to verse 30. So let me clarify what we mean by a personal confirmation of the resurrection. When we speak of that which is personal, and we can even throw in the word existential, we're dealing with how something affects us personally in terms of its meaning and significance. And Paul is now going to speak first to how the resurrection of Christ affects his life in terms of its meaning and significance, and then how it affects all believers in terms of its meaning and significance. So we have two arguments, two applications. So reading verses 30 to 32 with respect to Paul, who says, why are we, meaning himself as an apostle and other apostles, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. What Paul is arguing here is the reality of his own life on behalf of Jesus Christ. He first points to the dangers that he has been constantly exposed to over the course of his entire life of ministry for the past 25 years. And to emphasize this, he points specifically to what he had to face and fight at Ephesus, what he calls beast, most likely being the wild crowds who opposed him and wanted to tear him apart. His point is simply this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, if Christ has not been raised, why would he face such dangers daily? If the resurrection is not true, why would he devote his life for a lie? Why not simply live for pleasant, for the present pleasures, like the Epicureans, to eat, drink, and to be merry? Because your destiny is simply to die. In other words, you can't explain Paul's life, you can't explain his behavior, you can't explain the personal and existential nature of his service to Christ if you deny the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of Christ. Now, his second argument takes a different direction. This is down in verses 50 to 58, where he's now speaking to the church at Corinth generally. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This personal and existential argument that Paul gives here addresses the problem and crisis of death. And this crisis surrounding death is very real. History has recorded how the most arrogant and boastful of men have been defeated at death's door, conquered by the reality of death coming upon them. So let me give you three examples of men who knew the gospel very well, each man famous during the Enlightenment period. So we're going back 250 and 300 years. First, the American, Thomas Paine. He was the leading atheist in the American colonies. On his deathbed, he said to those who were around him, Stay with me, for God's sake. I cannot bear to be left alone. Oh, Lord, help me. Oh, God, what have I done to suffer so much? What will become of me hereafter? I would give worlds if I had them that the age of reason had never been published. Oh, Lord, help me. Christ, help me. No, don't leave. Stay with me. Send even a child to stay with me. For I am on the edge of hell here alone. If ever the devil had an agent, I have been that one. We're moving on to a Scots-Englishman by the name of David Hume, also an atheist and a philosopher, famous for his philosophy of empiricism and skepticism about religion. On his deathbed, in which his desperation made such a horrible scene to all those around him, he said, I am in flames. Then thirdly, the French political writer and philosopher Voltaire, famous for his anti-Christian intellectual efforts. He said this, I have swallowed nothing but smoke. I have intoxicated myself with the incense that turned my head I am abandoned by God and man. And he says to his, his physician, I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months of life. When he was told this was not possible, he said, then I shall die and go to hell. His nurse said, for all the money in Europe, I would not want to see another unbeliever die. All night long, he cried for forgiveness. Now, these voices from history, men of great intellect, great worldly fame, who argue with such great confidence against the reality of God, against Jesus Christ, each was conquered at the door of death. Even as Paul says in verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The crisis of death is the guilt in which one dies, having not obtained mercy or forgiveness for one's objective guilt before God, knowing that God's judgments and the flames of hell will certainly come. But for the Christian, and this is Paul's personal and existential witness to the truth of the resurrection of Christ, restating his words in this manner, that when the resurrection of the body comes, the, no the mortal will put on immortality. The sting of death will be removed. Death will be swallowed up in victory. And our thanks will be to God who has given us this victory in the face of death through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. 
In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, those who are truly believers, we know how to face death. The personal and existential crisis of death has been removed. There are no flames to be feared. There are no terrors to terrify us. There stands at death's doorway the one who has himself conquered death, the one who has risen just as he has said, which is why Paul then can exhort his beloved brothers in verse 58. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So Paul knew with total certainty that he served a risen Savior. None of his service to Jesus would ever be in vain. His personal and existential commitment was a confirmation of the resurrection that death had lost its sting. And this is the personal and existential confirmation of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, wrapping up. The Apostle Paul brings in this resurrection as the final part of the message that is of first importance. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, according to the Scriptures, became man in order to die in our place, to die for our sins, to provide a perfect atonement, to pay our sinful debt, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. And this message is of first and eternal importance. It is confirmed by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And that is what we proclaim and believe today. If there's anything that I would want for any of you and all of you, brothers and sisters, it is this, that you would find death and the doorway of death not something fearful and not something terrifying but that you would be able to see what Jesus Christ has done in rising from the dead to remove death's sting and to be able to say in Jesus, when I approach the doorway of death, I know the one who is standing there, even the one resurrected from the dead, even Jesus Christ who's conquered death and who has promised to return again to receive all of those unto himself who have trusted in him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the ultimate point of all things Christian that are of first importance. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Our God and Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel. Thank you for its confirmations in history and by logic and by even our own personal experience of having felt and experienced forgiveness of sins and your love and blessing and guidance in our lives. May we be ever, ever faithful to follow Jesus in every way in which this life may lead us always remembering that every man faces death. But when we come to that day and come to that time, the one waiting for us will be none other than the Son of God who died and rose again that we might be saved. In his name we pray. Amen.